he has the picture we just have a pixel we have a pixelated understanding of reality we become these like existential brats How do we reconcile Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being ar-Rahman ar-Rahim with evil in the world? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. I am your host, Kareem Sirajuddin. Joining me again today is Hamza Andrea Sorsas, calling in from the UK. Assalamu alaikum, sir. Thank you for joining me again. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. For those of you who don't know, he is the CEO of Ayira, which provides Islamic education to non-Muslims and dawa work. Hamza also specializes in philosophy, Islam, and science, um, and the how they all work together. He is an author, a lecturer, and I recommend everybody go get this book, The Divine Reality, which was recently published. And we talked about it in our last episode, and we're going to continue with these themes today, inshallah. So Hamza, we're going to jump right into it. Big question. I've asked myself this. People ask it to me. I'm sure you've heard it. How do we reconcile Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being ar-Rahman ar-Rahim with evil in the world? One of my friends who actually was a guest on the podcast uh, in the past, his name is Christopher Garner. We used to hang out a lot. And, uh, you know, we used to play chess, philosophize. He studied philosophy, you know, brilliant mind, you know, intellectual companion. We were playing chess and we had the TV on and there was some like, you know, one of these documentary programs, and it talked about how there was this uh, young girl in the state of Texas, I believe, who got bitten by this tiny poisonous spider when she was playing at a playground one day. And, you know, he looked at me when that happened, because we're always kind of poking at each other, right, intellectually. So he's like, explain to me the mercy of God now. And then he goes back and, you know, moves his next chess piece. And I just like kind of lean back and I'm like, subhanAllah, I really don't know how to explain that because they're like showing the parents crying and you know we can't believe this happened to our daughter and and it goes to commercial break and I remember thinking very vividly to myself yeah Allah I don't know the answer but I know enough about you that I'm sure there's a you know a meaningful response or, or reality to this um, and it's beyond of course just the pain of the person because that's often what we fixate on is like oh this sucks for them therefore the world must suck right it's like that's not always the way we have to follow our line of thinking and subhanallah after commercial break the show comes back and it shows like the parents a year later and they're like since our daughter you know was taken by the lord or whatever i mean i think they were christian folk their faith actually helped them reconcile this and they said because of this, we started a campaign to basically research for the antidote of this poison that's found in these spiders. And since then, they built an institution research and they've saved like hundreds of kids' lives ever since. And I looked at him when that happened and I said, that's the mercy of God. And then I moved my chess piece. <laughs> and this is what I want to start our discussion with today is how do we reconcile Allah's Rahman Rahim? while there's all this evil going on, because it's the biggest reason why a lot of people are, you know, anti-faith or anti-God. Well, I mean, I think your stories answered the question. In essence, the logic behind your stories is basically saying that, you know, in order for the problem of evil and suffering argument to even be coherent, you have to show that there is a logical incompatibility between God's wisdom and evil and suffering in the world. And that's impossible to show. So we have to distinguish between the logical aspect of the argument and the emotional aspect. Yes, it is very emotional. Okay, because many human beings, we, we should have humanistic, you know, driven type of impulses that we don't want people to be in pain. We want to empathize for sure. But we have to be very careful not to move from a humanistic impulse to what I call egocentrism. Mm. Egocentrism is... My way of seeing and feeling things is the only way. It's a cognitive bias. And what some people do, they have this empathy and they have this, you know, humanistic impulse. And then they say, well, if I'm feeling and seeing it this way, then God has to feel and see it this way too. Right. right? right. And this doesn't mean God does. It doesn't mean God wants evil. That's not the case. Right. But what, what but 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 what we're saying here is that there is a divine wisdom because the whole argument really 
is a bit of a logical fallacy. It builds a straw man and misrepresentation of the divine because it basically says you have an all-powerful God and he's supposed to be loving, merciful, good, whatever the case may be. And if that's the case, then he should have the ability to stop the evil if he is good and powerful. Right. And he should want to stop the evil since he is good and merciful. Now, if there is still evil, then maybe he's not powerful and maybe he is not good or loving or merciful. And if that's the case, then your God doesn't exist. But this is logically fallacious because they abstract only a few names and attributes of God, like his power and mercy, and they ignore the fact that Allah is wise. And if Allah is wise, then there is reasons and wisdom behind these things. And that's why I always say, you, in order for this argument to be logically coherent, you have to show the logical incompatibility between divine wisdom and evil and suffering in the universe, which is impossible to do. Mm. By virtue of the fact that Allah... God, by definition, has the totality of wisdom and knowledge. He has the picture. We just have a pixel. We have a pixelated understanding of reality. Right. Love that phrase. Yeah, I, I kind of like last night when I was mentally preparing for our discussion, I was visualizing. It's like, because, uh, uh, you know, we're fathers. So we know you, there's so many things you've tried to explain to your kids and they're just not going to get it. Right. There's just not going to happen because they haven't lived on this planet as long as we have. Right. So there's just things they just can't grasp. It's totally out of their reach. And we have to approach that by, you know, in the way that we're like, OK, we're the ones who are wiser and have more knowledge and experience. So let me, you know, try to comfort this person through the 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 trauma of not having ice cream when they want or getting the toy Absolutely. that they want or whatever, you know, not getting what I want and feeling pain, discomfort or a type of suffering, which essentially for them is. Why are you doing this to me, Dad? Why are you saying no? I thought you loved me. I thought yeah. you cared about me. I thought you know what, you know. But it's like, yeah, but you also forgot that I also know what's best for you. And I have more wisdom and experience than you. And that doesn't always mean I'm just going to give you what you want, which is this point you're making that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the, the notion of the divine can't just be one thing. Like, oh, God is love. Okay, as soon as God is love, that means anything contrary to that that exists now opens up the possibility of believing that's a false premise. And maybe God doesn't exist now because God, if God is love, then why is there hate? Why is there this? Why is there that? Yeah, right? for sure. Like we do believe that God is al-wudud, which comes from the Arabic word wud, which means a loving that is giving. So Allah is loving. But you're so right. Allah is not only the loving. He is al-hakim, which means the wise, al-alim, the knowing. So if you're going to try and say that God doesn't exist, then at least attack the God that we believe in. Don't attack a God that the monotheistic traditions do not believe in. Don't create a straw man, right? A misrepresentation of the divine. The Christians don't believe in that God. The Muslims don't believe in that type of God. And the Jews don't believe in that God. We believe, yes, in a loving, merciful God, but that's also wise. And since there's divine wisdom, it means there is a reason. There is no incompatibility here between divine wisdom and the level of evil and suffering in the world. And if you think there is, then the onus of proof is on you because you're making that, that type of claim. However, here's a question. Usually people say, hey, referring to God's wisdom, isn't that a cop-out? Isn't that an intellectual cop-out? Because you just don't know. So how does that solve the problem? Because it's intellectually uh, valid to say, I don't know. And part of the intellect is to recognize what it doesn't know, but continue. But also there's two things here. The first thing is, well, by definition, you will never know all of God's wisdom because if you do, then you become God in a way, right? Because God's wisdom is the totality of knowledge and wisdom. God has the picture. We just have the pixel. So by virtue of that, we will never be able to know all of God's wisdom. The second point is this. The argument is not here. The argument here is not about saying we know what God's wisdom is. Here's the reason. No, what we're saying is the nature of God the nature of God is not incompatible with the level of evil and suffering in the, in, in the universe. By virtue of who he is, the fact that he is good, merciful, powerful, and wise. And if there is a divine wisdom, whatever that wisdom is, it's going to be a reason which really dismantles the argument. But I would also turn the tables, bro. I would say to them, hold on a second. How is it a cop-out? 
if you study Western philosophy, the sources of knowledge, epistemology, for example, you will know that you're not going to know everything. Mm-hmm. You will know that you have to refer to the authority of other people in certain spheres of knowledge. For example, Dr. Elizabeth Fricker, she basically says that given that her that she has limitations, she has to obey or refer to the authority of other people. When we go to the doctor, we give them the symptoms and she gives us the medicine. We're not going to be so arrogant and say, oh, I'm not taking this medicine because the molecular structure is wrong and you don't know what you're talking about. That's just ridiculous. We submit to the authority and wisdom of the doctor because we don't have her background or expertise. When I fly a lot and the pilot says, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be experiencing some turbulence. Please sit down and fasten your seatbelt. What am I going to do? Am I going to say, what does he know? He's ignorant. And am I going to start moonwalking on the aisle like Michael Jackson? No. Or some kind of, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, what do you call it? Street dance? No, I'm going to sit down and buckle up because I'm going to submit or refer to the authority of the pilot because he has wisdom that I don't have. And I can't access that wisdom because I don't I haven't done that training. Yeah. So that response for me is just a is 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 a cop out. The door swings both ways. Yeah, and I think I mean I love that breakdown and also to add to that this idea of you know it's a cop out to just say, Oh, because God is all knowing and all knowledgeable and why I said, Okay, look, just hypothetically, theoretically, let's say this creator that Islam describes actually exists, right? For a moment. This, you know, eternal power, wisdom, knowledge, it's, you know, it just basically said be and the universe, you know, this universe came and everything else that exists. This is who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, right? And it's not just love or mercy or power, even though mercy and Rahman, Rahman and Rahim are the dominant names. So there's definitely a huge emphasis on that. But there's other powers like the most just, the one who raises and lowers, the one who punishes, the one who gives and takes away, the one who, you know, is most knowledgeable, etc. Right? Now, one argument that I have for that response is, okay, if we accept that something like this exists for a moment, and you actually try to understand it. It's almost like, you know, even though it's still light, you know, eternally, eternal uh, light years away from if actually God existed comparing it to myself or any person. But it's as if you and I said, Hamza, we have to somehow teach this book to a colony of ants in my backyard. We have to first figure out how to break this language barrier, not human language barrier, but, you know, interspecies language barrier. And then once we do that, which could take God knows how long, right? We actually have to now go through this very thick, dense book and and talk about these, or we have to teach, give them a PhD in physics, like something that you're just like, dude, that will take forever to even start scratching the surface of. It's like, exactly. And that's just a human to an ant or even a dog, right? What about when they were talking about me and you compared to this notion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as he is. I mean, that to me just suggests why you, it's not a cop-out. It's actually very logical and very intellectual based on the hierarchy of knowledge, properties, existence, being. What are your thoughts about that? I think that's brilliant. Absolutely. It's are you like, going to use uh, it in your next book? Or? <laughs> well, it's quite interesting because I use this, I use this, I, I quote Professor Antti Ravoncio when I talk about consciousness and an argument against uh, strong, strong emergent materialism or an argument for strong emergent materialism. Basically, they say, you know, we will never know about the complexities of the brain and how it produces consciousness. It's, it's beyond us. It's the equivalent of putting Darwin's book in a hamster's cage, thinking the hamster is going to know the contents of the book. And this is so true. Now, I wouldn't call it an analogy because we don't really make analogies with God, but it's a greater reason. It's an a, it's a a fortiori argument. You're right. So if, for example, if between one human being, and another human being, one is more smart than the other. And even from the point of view of the species example you gave, by greater reason, it follows that we will never access the divine knowledge and wisdom. Absolutely. No way. No way. And it's not a cop out because it would only be a cop out if you just basically shut the door to any investigation. You're saying, look, by virtue of who God is and by virtue of who by virtue of who we are, it's just impossible. It's equivalent in a way of a hamster understanding 
Aristotle. (laughs) Aristotle. Absolutely. So you're right. But not only that, it's always good to give examples to their lives because when they go to the doctor, when they go to university, when they're learning from a book, they are submitting to uh, submitting themselves to another authority. Right. But But I gave the the parent one. Right. Like the parent one is very relatable. Absolutely. Just like in the beginning of the chapter concerning this argument, I talk about whiskey. My grandfather used to have this gold liquid Mm. and drink whiskey. And I wanted someone when I was a kid, but my parents say no. Now, obviously, I'm going to get upset and think that my parents are evil, right, from that point of view. So, absolutely. But it's also important to see in the context of the of the argument itself in a little bit more detail from the point of view that they have to understand that they are building a misrepresentation of the divine. That's the point. This is why we're bringing wisdom in there. And themselves, because the self assumes it can understand everything, you know, that premise. Of it has to fit into my mind, right? And from a psychological perspective, you know, we don't even know what we think or believe half the time. Now we're projecting and saying, well, I know what God thinks or I have to know what God thinks in order for me to believe. You don't even know what you think about stuff half the time. So, again, I just feel like it's arrogance masked under this, you know, uh, so-called humility and seeker of truth and, and what have you. Sorry to cut you off. No, that was so deep. That was deep. That was very deep. I don't want to lose it when it comes because it comes from Allah. No, bring and you it wanna, I miss. I always miss a thousand thoughts. So for no, now I'm always that, jotting. That was very deep. And you know what's very, that's just deep. That was deep. It's true. Like, you know, someone uh, asked, uh, I think uh, someone asked Ali Ghazali, where is Allah? And then he wrote back to him saying, uh, where are you? <laughs> you know, he always brought it back to the self and existential questions. Like someone asked me once for the absolute evidence for God's existence. And I said, well, do you have absolute evidence that you exist? <laughs> right? I said, how do you know, you know, your brain's not on Mars with metal probes in your brain making you think and feel, you know, this reality? So the reason I turned it back on him to basically make him realize that it's not just about, you know, abstract rationalization, you know? You know, if you think your faith or your spiritual and intellectual conviction comes about just because of, you know, carefully set premises, then you're in big trouble because someone smarter than you will play around with your premises and what's going to happen? You know, this, this is exactly what Al-Ghazali said. He was basically saying that, you know, Iman, intellectual, spiritual conviction doesn't come only through a set of premises. It's more you've experienced the Quran and many other things that has happened in your life or other things that you realize or existential realities that come all together that basically helps you, you know, be convinced. And, and fundamentally, Hidayah. The guidance is, is is a gift and a mercy from, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not as a result of some kind of abstract algorithm that was some kind of AI machine that you type in the algorithm and all of a sudden, you know, you're going to have faith. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Bringing it back actually to my buddy Chris, I mean, university, it's like you're not a real intellectual unless you are an atheist, unless you are basically with the zeitgeist of whatever constructs are of the time. And that was happening when I was back in university, right? Like early, we're talking like, what is it, 2000? Once a professor went to Chris, who was doing like philosophy and social ethic, the professor said to him, you know, Chris, for all your brilliance, I'm surprised that you believe in a creator. Why? He basically asked him, and I, and I overheard this because this was like an after-class little like mini discussion. And Chris looked at him and he said one word, and this is going back to your, give me an absolute proof because maybe this works. He said, women. No way. I swear to God. He's like, women. He's like, how do you not look at a woman and the fact that we are designed to fit like to each other like a glove and think that that's completely random and all everything that comes with that, right? Um, and in the podcast that I had with him, I mentioned that to him and he's like, he didn't remember that. And he's like, but I could totally see, you know, given the age I was and what was going on for me, that that was the strongest proof for me. All right. (laughs) I was whooping now, you know, we, we kind of, that was a really solid intro to this idea of mercy and evil. Let's say a person goes, all right, now I get that. Like, okay, the, the believing in God's, you know, there's more than one attribute. We can't fixate on one. He has 99 in Islam, you know, and the point here is that it's showing us this total holistic singularity or ahad, ahadun, one without a second uh, that exists. And these powers and forces are emanating from it and we're witnessing it in creation constantly. This is the theater of signatures of, of the divine will. And we have our own little sparks of will 
you know, running through this whole simulation, so to speak. Now, if we accept that and we accept there's wisdom and, you know, knowledge and this place is meant to bring something out of us that is more than just the needs and desires of our physical biology. If I accept that evil exists and it's not, doesn't mean there is no God. Now I have to ask myself, how do I reconcile it believing there is one, right? So what are the meaningful treasures or gems that we take from evil and some of you list some of these in your book one of them is you know the one i think that is very common for a lot of people is okay bad things evil things difficult things it's all about refinement conditioning bringing out your inner element teaching you lessons um one acronym that i love using in my work it's not an original by the way but it's fail means forever acquiring important lessons oh wow love it right and now every time i feel like i failed at something i say Kareem, you just took away a forever acquired important lesson. What was it? How can you make sure, you know, you reduce the chances of that same mistake happening again in the future? And also the benefit of having that memory. Because a lot of people also say, you know, why can't I just forget about all this jahiliya or haram or addictions that I've been in? And it's like, look, that's part of Allah's rahmah. Because if you have total amnesia of it, you could easily fall back into it. But if the impressions and the stains and the scars spiritually, physically, emotionally, are there. Even though you're healed, alhamdulillah, you have to remember that. That stuff reminds us like, oh, we got to be more careful. Or you get a $800 speeding ticket, all of a sudden you're not Mr. Ironfoot anymore, right? <laughs> so all these things kind of snap you and sling you back into this like, oh, you know, recalibration experience. So that's, you know, those are some of the facets, but I know there's a lot more to get into. But why don't we start with that first one, which I know you mentioned in your chapter, and this is evil is also meant to bring out the good in you. And it's also a force that helps us identify good as well as work towards the good. So perhaps it's even connected to a sense of personal descriptive meaning and purpose as well. But let's yeah. uh, unpack it. I see, from a psychological point of view, evil is only evil if we give a particular meaning to evil, right? Mm. And, you know, even in cognitive psychology, the way to deal with evil and suffering in your life or, or, or tests and trials is by literally assessing the meaning you're giving to this test or trial and changing the meaning. What's very interesting is you have, you know, in, in our context, two opposing worldviews. You have atheism or in specific philosophical naturalism, which basically says there's no divine, there's no supernatural, everything can be explained by physical processes. And then you have theism, Islamic theism. Now, these two worldviews give a different meaning to evil. Now, the, 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 the meaning that you get from philosophical naturalism, in essence, is nobody cares fundamentally. It's all sentimentalism, but on its fundamental level, physical processes, electrons whizzing around, your son dying because he got run over by a bus, the the universe doesn't care. It's pitless indifference. That's what Dawkins said right. in his book. It's Cold, indifferent, right? Yes. Dark. Pitless indifference. Yeah. But, but, but when it comes to Islam, and we could use the same example, you know, God forbid this happens to us. If, for example, your son gets run over and he passes away, then there are so much meaning we can give to this from our spiritual tradition. Number one, Allah tests those who he loves, which means a few things, by the way. Number one, it means you got divine love. Hmm. Number two, it means this is a path for you to have eternal bliss. What does eternal bliss mean? And I'm paraphrasing the prophetic tradition that if someone suffered a whole lifetime and they were dipped in paradise and they were destined to go to paradise and they were dipped in paradise for a split moment, they would be asked, did you ever suffer? They would say, I have never suffered, right? Also, it means that Allah sees something in you that you don't see in yourself, that he wants you to see in yourself, that you have the ability, the capacity, and the power to overcome this trial. Right. The other, mean, the other meaning is that we know when children pass away, they're going to be waiting in paradise and dragging and holding the hand or holding the parent to paradise until they come to paradise, right? So you have a different meaning. It doesn't mean you're not going to feel pain now and sorrow and anguish. But look at the meaning that you're giving now to suffering. You know life is a test. Allah, Allah, Allah tests those who He loves. It means that you have a bit, the ability to overcome this test. Um, it, it, there's also a greater metaphysic going on. There's a greater grand cosmic story that your life 
is limited. Then you're going to have an akhirah, which is eternal. Hereafter, that's eternal. And inshallah, you will taste eternal bliss. Mm. And that's a fundamentally different story that you're telling yourself and you're giving to evil and suffering. Now compare that practically, emotionally, psychologically, and even spiritually and philosophically with the alternative, which is pitless indifference. SubhanAllah. So, so far, the benefits of evil or why it exists and how we can make meaning of it according to or reflecting the divine pattern, right? Or plan for us, right? This is what we're supposed to understand. Um, Refinement and development of the person. Sometimes, like you said, you don't even know you have this courage, this strength, this resilience, and, you know, that's going to happen and it brings out something in you that, you, you know, like, let's say you're super insecure and you lacked confidence, something happens and you were able to come out of it and all of a sudden it's like the lights went on in this very different way for your personality and your resilience. So now you're like, oh my God, like, you almost, almost like you advanced into this new level or mode of yourself, right? And you wouldn't have never known if everything stayed comfortable, predictable, and the same shows on Netflix every weekend and got, you know, whatever it is, right? So it wakes us up and also helps us also see the things that we were taking for granted. Like I always tell people, hey, are you, you know, oh man, I'm bored. Life is so boring. I need that, you know. I'm like, Akhi, wallahi, that's a rahmah, mm. right? The fact that you get up every day and go to work and come home and there's infinite possibilities that could happen to you. And every day you come home and it's pretty much the same thing and that's starting to bore you. Wallahi, that's Allah protecting you in that routine because you know every day there's an accident on the highway. You hear a friend or a cousin who's, this guy left his wife, this woman passed away, this person has can't. Alhamdulillah, right? If you're bored, right? You shouldn't be bored. You should be productive. But my point is, is on this point of we want all this excitement, right? But anyway, side note of Allah's rahmah is everywhere. The other thing that evil does is it helps us identify or define the phenomena itself, right? And contrast between evil and good. And of yeah. course, that's useful tool because it helps us make meaning, which is why we're here. We're, ma- we're meaning-making machines. And I also think it has this role in without bad things or evil things or challenging things happening, we never also really have more clarity perhaps around our purpose and meaning as an individual, right? Because there's two types of meaning quickly. You know, there's prescriptive meaning, which is what Allah has prescribed. But it also goes on to say, that Allah's uh, telling us, I don't need your prayer. I'm the most invincible. You know, I don't need you to feed me. This is for you, right? Essentially. So we're here to serve and worship and adore Allah and follow his guidance for our own well-being. But then we always have to ask ourselves at some point, and I think sometimes most some of our brothers and sisters don't get there right away or as soon as they would have liked because they're still stuck in the prescriptive meaning. Like, I have to be like everybody else. I have to follow the community's expectations and labels. And that's how I'm getting my kind of uh, motivation externally. Right and my validation externally, but once in a, we have to stop and go. Well, what's my descriptive meaning? In other words, why did Allah create you, Hamza? Why did Allah create me, Karim, or Donald Trump, or anybody? And what am I supposed to do here with myself, my talents, my struggles, my experiences, my memories? What has happened to me and not happened to me, good and bad? That's going to create and generate you know, infinite possibilities of people and gifts and talents and struggles. So to bring this and close my sharing here, if you think about it, when an evil strikes a person or suffering, there's perhaps three major ways a person can make meaning of it or respond, right? And of course, there's the variables of surviving as an animal, surviving emotionally, uh, wanting to thrive spiritually, emotionally, intellectually. But let's say, you know, a story I remember you know, a person who was born and raised in, let's say, a cult where there was all this sexual abuse happening, right? This false notions of God and, you know, this is what God wants for the cult leader to have sex with pretty much everybody. Kids, you name it, right? Just sick stuff happening out there. And a young woman can come out of this experience um, and either escape one day, right? And basically go, that was horrible, even though it took time for them to realize that wasn't, you know, that was against my fitra, right? As they got older, they started to recognize without any exposure to the outside world, and then they run away. And now that they're out and they have a chance now, right, theoretically, they can either repress what happened 
and try to just, you know, suffer in silence and kind of live and cope slowly, you know, but also have that really dysfunction and, and mental disorder or illness, like this unprocessed trauma. And they just get through like that. And there's people that's what they go for. Others say, no, I'm going to become the evil I just ran away from as a protective measure to ensure it never happens to me again, right? I'll become the abuser. I'll become the bully. I'll become the racist. I'll become the bigot. That's what sometimes people do, right? Is we become the thing that we don't want done to us anymore as it's like, well, if I can't beat them, join them, as they say. And lastly, I think it's what Allah wants from us is you take the experience transfer the energy right through therapy training support with family whatever your conditions require and you transfer it as the good to replace the evil that you tasted the version of evil that you tasted so for example you know this is a true story of somebody and they they were one of those people who said when i you know finally escaped and got out got into college and they got scholarship and all this, they became you know a mental health practitioner that would help specifically People who grew up in cults and were sexually abused. Now we have a solution. Now we have a cure. We have a doctor for this evil, existential evil. So it's almost like we become existential providers or caregivers or doctors even for the particular yes. evils we've gone through. And perhaps, you know, at least from my humble observations, that's one of the deep wisdoms and meaning uh, for a human being to find purpose, reconcile why this is happening and what we're supposed to make out of it. And lastly, that... Um, it is the way that we literally replace good uh, evil with good, right? It's like you have to know what kind of ingredients of a specific thing is there for you to harmonize or counter it, so to speak. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, Allah says that he created us, you know, on, on this world to be tested, to see which one of you are best indeed in action. And the story that you just related to us, that person seems to have passed the test right? right because you know this life is not supposed to be all like you know flowers and angels and you know everything is fine you know life is is it, we're, we're gonna suffer i mean life's gonna kick you in the mouth and you're gonna it's gonna be dark and you're gonna be look, looking for your teeth yeah i mean you know and this is life and then the, the whole point of the quran and the sun and guidance is to give you these spiritual existential philosophical intellectual tools so you can navigate and you could pass that test that is exactly the point absolutely right so and, and, and for me, from the kind of philosophical argument point of view, the reason the atheists, when they say there's no God because of the problem of evil and suffering, the reason is false is not only because of what we just discussed, that they misrepresenting the divine. And, you know, we talk about divine wisdom, but also they've assumed that Allah or God hasn't given us any good reason to, uh, he hasn't given us any reason why there's evil and the suffering in the first place. Mm. But Allah has given us reason for why there's evil and suffering in the first place. Right. So if you want to summarize the problem of evil argument, it's based on two false assumptions. Assumption number one, that, that God is only good and powerful. We know that's false because it's also the wise and that answers the question or deals with the, 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 the logical issue here. Mm. And number two, the second false assumption is that they are assuming that Allah hasn't given us any good good reason why there's evil and suffering in the first place but when you look into the quran and the sunnah you see what the reasons are and not only that allah gives us the spiritual tools to solve right. the problem and he gives us the meaning to solve the problem so absolutely yeah subhanallah the um i almost feel like without the tests and tribulations or the evil that happens right and again we're not talking about every situation as you're being brutally beaten and raped god forbid right evil of course has a spectrum just like good or beauty um but the point here is you know discomfort pain you know all the way up to the more severe things yeah everyone's gonna have their load of that right sometimes it's mental torture right or or difficulty mental illness you know you may never have cancer but you have other things going on etc but i almost feel like if we didn't have it it's like having a spoiled kid right again going i love you know the parent child analogy is very profound you know and part, that's again part of allah's wisdom that he ordered things because in the heavens and the earth are ayat right so this idea here is that if we don't go through difficult things things that kind of again snap us out of our little bubbles you know we become these like existential brats 
You know, we're just spoiled. Like life has to be always about good times or my Instagram and everything has to be, you know, just pleasure and injection of my nafs, essentially. And if it's not, I have a problem with that. Well, then that means, again, you're not, the lights aren't on because you don't understand life as it actually is yet. Right. And it's just like when you have a spoiled kid, it's like this kid, just you just give him everything. You know, it's like get up and work or vacuum, help your mom, you know, help your dad paint the shed. This is the stuff that we would want to do if our kid was spoiled or we had friends that their kids were spoiled. This is the stuff we usually like we're like observing. Right. It's like, man, the kid's really spoiled. Right. In other words, they want everything handed to them. No questions asked. Just give me pleasure. I, my life has to be your priority to be happy. Make it happy. And basically, that's what the human being is requesting of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his majesty, right? And it's like, again, naturally everyone has their process. But if that's still where you're thinking, you have no idea who Allah is or what we're, what is even implied by Allah's descriptions in the Quran. Let's just say that because I'm not making yeah. any claims here, right? But the point is that like... Like, just the fact that I hear all these dialogues even today, you have, of course, different Muslim progressives and feminists and this and that. And while there's a lot of um, value and very uh, important objectives to some of these things, I feel like sometimes the tone of certain, you know, people or authors, it just comes across as like, I don't even know if you get what you and I are talking about right now, right? Because it's like, I feel like if you really understood who Allah is or who the prophets were and what Islam as a tradition is, you know, you'd have, I want to say, more respect and courtesy around the topics or talking about the NBA or things that, you know, are outside of your scope. And yes, I get it that, yes, in our tradition and things that some Muslims in the past and today have done is quite abhorrent and, and not humane. I totally agree because Islam is supposed to only increase in humanity and compassion, etc. Yani, this awe, like this idea of khushua, which is also mentioned in the book and of course in the Quran, um, I feel like that perhaps is one of the indicators for an individual when they're starting to, you know, tap into an approximate, you know, meaning of who this Lord actually is and why it yeah. makes complete sense to put your head on the ground five times a day and to have, you know, to live up to the life that is described in revealed religions. Yeah, of course. I mean, like, look, a lot of people, you know, the way they want to see the world is sometimes a protraction. It's a protraction and extension of their own ego. At the end of the day, this world was never supposed to be perfect. Uh, the whole, you know, there's a difference between, there's a difference between creation as, you know, an interplay of divine names and attributes and dunya which comes from the word is adna, it's a lowly. So, you know, the ephemeral nature of the world, greed, materialism, ego, excessive competition, jealousy, um, you, know, you know, striving for power, wanting to impose, always want to be right, never want to be wrong, always want to look good, never want to look bad. You know, these, these aspects of the nafs and the ego, the ephemeral nature of the world, you know, it is as it is from a spiritual point of view to make us realize not to attach ourselves too much to it. Because there is a prophetic tradition where the Prophet said that dunya, the love of the dunya is the root of all evil, right? And this is very interesting because, you know, if you know the dunya in terms of the ephemeral aspects of the creative world, the ephemeral aspects of the world, if you know it as it is, then that becomes a mechanism for you to detach yourself away from it. And detachment from the dunya allows you to attach your heart to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm. So the, another kind of spiritual wisdom behind the, the fact that this world is like lowly, the ephemeral aspects of the world is, is lowly, is that when you recognize that, you become less attached to it and therefore more attached to Allah. And the more attached to Allah you are, the more you'll be able to attain felicity and success forever in the Akhirah. Yeah, subhanAllah. And, you know, I would even say, according to Allah, not myself, you get treasures here in this world too, right? Because some, some, sometimes Muslims are like, oh, it's all about the Akhirah kind of thing. It's like, no, 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 you, in, you get investments here and the next life, inshallah, right? And so, for instance, a simple thing like the afkar of Allah, like you're saying, right? And Allah tells us, when you remember me, I remember you. You find tranquility in your heart. When you have taqwa of me, I teach you. And so on and so forth. So, 
I mean, it's very simple. Again, if we accept that there, the notion, the definition of Allah as he describes himself and say that absolutely exists, you don't think that when you are tapping into that, plugging into that, talking to it, feeling it, remembering it, carrying it with you, you're not going to get some treasures or resources from the absolute knowledge of Allah, right? Like you're not going to get deeper insights, intuitions, even prophecy, right, of things to, to come. I mean, people describe all kinds of states and experiences that is not, it's precognitive or it's, it has not, it's known, it's not neurological per se, right? Um, so it's very interesting that people forget that it's not just like, prayer is not just what we make out of it, even though it is, but it's also remembering that once we have done our job of understanding what we're talking about and kind of establishing that relationship, you'll start getting things from Allah, like any other best friend starts giving you things, right? Rides, let me treat you to lunch. Oh, dude, I got this nice misc. I want to give it to you. You start getting, you know, gifts and resources as well, not just presence and knowledge and love, right? Absolutely. So, so remember this, ladies and gentlemen, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I always tell people, especially who are in recovery or whatever, I said, remember when you do, Allah is also doing with you, especially when you have ihsan and sincerity, don't, you know, trust me, God's going to help you because that's his promise. It's not my guarantee. It's what Allah says. Is there, is there any other reward for good other than good? Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of people are resistant to step forward with, let's say, ihsan, like, oh, you know, re- relations with my wife is bad. My, my father, I haven't talked to him a lot. And I just said, look, just try this, you know, just go give him a hug. Don't even say anything. Just give him some human touch. Like, I don't remember the last time I did that, brother. I'm like, yeah, exactly. Just go try it. And like, that's going to be really hard. They're going to think it's weird. And we've, I've never hugged my dad. I'm like, Hal just try it. And subhanAllah, most of the time they're like, yeah, I don't know what, why I never did it before. But some, some wall came down after this, right? And it's like, exactly, because when you follow the principles of Allah and the Prophet, the rahmah, the compassion, the akhlaq, the adab, you're going to open doors and experiences and treasures that you would totally miss out on if you just thought all this was allegory and poetic and historical. And yeah, that's nice. But now we know everything real clear. And that's just, you know, we're still reading, you know, about this guy from 1500 years ago. Give me a break. You know, I mean, some people say that, right? And they identify with the Muslim community. Yeah, I mean, this is the interesting point here. The point here is not about abstract reading. I mean, how many we read too many books sometimes, and but it hasn't changed us at all. Like abstract, abstract knowledge doesn't change your state of being, how you relate with yourself, with others, with the world, and with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because Islam is supposed to change your state of being, not only your state of abstract knowing. Because Islam is not merely a belief. It's, 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 it's a form of knowing that changes your heart, changes what you're saying, how you relate with yourself, with others, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now coming to the point of the evil issue and wisdom... What's very interesting is, look at the story in the 18th chapter of the Qur'an between Musa alayhi salam and Khidr. Oh, and, yeah, don't get us started. Know. Here we go. Absolutely. And we all know the story. Basically, there is this amazing, you know, profound divine wisdom. But for me, some people forget the psychological state of Musa alayhi salam. Look at the maqam of Musa, the status of Musa. He's a prophet, beloved prophet. And he goes to Khidr and he humbles himself to take knowledge from Khidr because he knows that Allah has given knowledge to Khidr that Allah hasn't given to Musa alayhi salam. And remember, Musa wasn't just a prophet. He was one of the greatest prophets and messengers and Allah Absolutely. spoke to him directly. Very important. Absolutely. Continue. Yeah. So look how look at his maqam, his status. But yeah, he's being humble. That's the first point. The second point is he tries to be patient throughout the whole journey he says, I'm going to be patient. Then he interrupts and he says, oh, no, but what about this? But he is patient. So there are two spiritual lessons we learn. If you want the wisdom of Allah to unravel in your life, then be humble and be patient. And this is so important for any mm. believer, for any human being. You have humility and you have patience. You're going to be seeing things in your life. You're going to look back in your life and you're going to be, you're going to be like hyperbolic statement. And you're going to be like, who writes the script? Now, you know Allah writes the script, but you're going to be like, wow. Yeah, because you're going to see dots being connected that you never even exactly. realized. Right? And this is the journey of life. This is the journey of life. And a really interesting book to read is Viktor Frankl's book. It's called 
man's ultimate search for meaning. Now he was a Holocaust survivor, and he says if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't basically have meaning in my life. So in some bizarre cosmic way, what happened to him during the Holocaust in Nazi Germany was in some way a good in some way, right. which is paradoxical. But from an existential point of view, you get the point. He derived meaning for his existence, right? In some way. So the point here is, especially when you're talking about dhikr and dhikr and afghar and all of these things. You know, one famous scholar said that if you don't taste paradise in the dunya, you probably won't taste it in the akhirah, which is the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's very important to understand that Islam is not some kind of abstract theology, but rather it's not just about memorizing things, but it's about internalizing the tradition through practice. Do you pray your five times a day? Not in a mechanical way, but do you have the inner dimensions of the salah of the prayer? Do you know the kind of symbolism of the sujood of of the prostration? Do you know what you're actually saying, saying in your prayer? Yeah. Do you know is what your, fatihah means? Yeah. Is your is your heart connected with Allah Subhanahu wa Taala? Are you doing the dhikr? Is your heart doing the dhikr as well? So these things are so important because over time. When you have patience in this and you're humble, over time, not only is wisdom going to be revealed to you in some way, you're going to understand life in a more holistic way, but also your heart is going to be content. And that is the biggest treasure that Allah can give you, in my view, is a content heart regardless of context. Hmm. Some people always want their context to change. But you know what? Life's always going to hit you in the face. But who are you in the situation? And if Allah blesses you with taqwa, with God consciousness, with patience, and with always looking at gratitude and being grateful to Allah regardless of the situation, that is a truly rich soul. And that that wealth has been given by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you're, you're so right. You're so right. Yeah. And may Allah make us like this, Ameen. all of us like Ameen. this. Amen. Gratitude's the soul's way of smiling. The meaning of life is to keep making meaning. Gratitude's the soul's way of smiling. And that's what needs to be revived because I think we have secularized our tradition from the point of view we've taken this kind of, you know, abstract philosophical thinking and we've been superimposing our tradition. But the whole point of the existential thinkers was, in in a way, was to transcend philosophy, is to show, well, well how does this relate to you? In the phenomena. Yeah. yeah, phenomena. How does it affect your existence? your state of being because humans are not human doings we're human beings we become in the world through our relations as even bruce lee right bruce lee said to be to be is to be related when you relate to yourself to allah to other things and the world around you that is your state of being so the things that you know the things that you do the things that you believe in how does that affect your state of being and we've lost that in our tradition i think Mm. We've lost that uh, because, you know, you can know all of the ayat on Rahma, on mercy. You can know all the verses on mercy, all the prophetic traditions on mercy and love, but you may never become a person of mercy and love. Why? Why is there such a big disconnect between, between abstract knowing and who you become? There's that gap and that gap is actually filled or you could transition between abstract knowing to becoming by experiencing the tradition and following that spiritual path praying five times a day, reading your Qur'an, doing tadabbur over the Qur'an, do your dhikr, do your, do, do your remembrance of God, following that spiritual path, which really connects the abstract knowledge with who you become. Right. And that is, for me, the crisis of our times, I'm telling you. It's, it's the crisis of our community. Because, you know, even doubts, you know, people think they become intellectual because they read some book on philosophy. Let me tell you something by getting into academia. We're trained to look at a really good deductive argument and smash it to pieces. And even if it sounds really good, we're trained to basically make a few tweaks and say, there you go, you don't have an argument. Anymore. Oh, man. But, so you're going to do yeah. that to all my arguments today? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I'm kidding. The point I'm trying to say, yeah, there are some arguments stronger than others for sure. But the point I'm trying to say here is this. You know, someone reads a book at university and think, oh, I have this doubt now, this intellectual issue. 90% of the cases, and I'm using that 90% quite loosely, but there's something there. 90% of the cases, 
there's something psychological going on. Let me tell you a story that happened to me a few weeks ago. So mm. someone comes to the office and they're, they're an atheist. Okay, they, came, they used to be a very practicing Muslim and they became an atheist. And we were talking about consciousness, philosophy of the mind. That's something that I specialized in for my MA. My dissertation was on that. And hopefully I'm going to do that you know, in my postgraduate research, hopefully as a PhD, philosophy of the mind. So I know something little bit about it. So we're having a very interesting discussion. And then he was like, you know, I believe robots could have consciousness, human consciousness. You know, they can have, you know, uh, inner subjective conscious experiences. Like, really? Wow. I was like, you know, there's a difference between strong AI, strong AI and weak AI. And I cited Professor John Searle. We talked about the Chinese room experiment. We didn't talk this deal. But anyway, then I said to him, what's your major problem? He's like, well, I don't believe in God because it's really weird that God has human-like attributes. I was like, but you know, we don't believe he has human attributes. You know, he is transcendent and his attributes are perfect. They're maximally perfect with no deficiency and no flaw. And he's like, yeah, but still, I don't get it. And then I call him on something. And when I realize this, I always try to change the subject from an intellectual discussion to an emotional psychological one mm. because he contradicted himself. He was willing to give a human-like attribute to an AI robot that is dead, blind, non-conscious. And yet he had the difficulty the other way. Now, the point is the logic was very similar. The logical door swings both ways on this issue. So I exposed that to him. I said, isn't it very interesting that you had no problem giving an, a, a robot that's dead, in, in essence, human consciousness. But when the logic was reversed the other way, you, you had a huge problem. I said, there is an inconsistency here. And to cut a long story short, I brought, I brought into my own experience, I brought into the conversation my own experiences about my father, and I tried to indicate that he may have a problem psychodynamically. Do you know what happened? He started crying. He got really aggressive. He stood up. And I was like, oh my God, what's happened here? I literally pressed the button. I literally pressed the button. That I, didn't, I didn't, want, didn't want him to be like that, but he, was, he just went all aggressive. And I was like, that's it. So I changed the subject, I moved, I said, forget philosophy, and I just engaged with him as a human being. And now speaking to his family, he's trying to build his relationships back at home. Something has changed in him. He's more, you know, by the sounds of him, more understanding towards Islam. So for me, sometimes the intellectual arguments are just a veil for something else that's really going really going on. And that's why we right. need to focus on states of being. Who are we? How do we relate? And that's very fundamental. Yeah. SubhanAllah, man. SubhanAllah. Great story. Yeah. I mean, the nature of being is, of course, this idea was we're talking about existentialism, phenomenology, um, like Viktor Frankl in that book, you know, Man's Search for Meaning. You know, one of the profound stories that he shares is when he was at the concentration camp and he talked about, if you will, the power of attitude and that, you know, in the, the psychic space, there is stimuli there's a space and then there's response, right? And, and in that space, it's generally where we consciously conjure up our will or our attitude, our choice, our, our behavior, right? That's why they always say think before you act because that's that space, right? So, but he said something very interesting. He said, why is it, you know, that there are people at the camp and he was amongst the people under this suppression. Why are there people at the camp who have basically completely given up which is understandable, right? Um, and they're just waiting to die. And they're just living in misery every day. And he said, yet, why are there also people that are still smiling, playing with the children and sharing their, you know, half of their little biscuit that isn't enough for them to eat anyways? And they're commenting about the tree, you know, outside of the cage that we're in and saying, look how beautiful this is, or pulling out a picture of their wife and saying, inshallah, one day I'll see you again, right here or the next. And he witnessed this, you know, like you could have being in a concentration camp in the Holocaust and you have totally different experiences based on how you make meaning of it. And subhanAllah, the cases he shared about those people who are still had ihsan in the process of that, to me is like, there is the pinnacle of the point, <laughs> right? No matter what, you still see God, you still see Rahman al-Rahim, you still see al-Jamil, you still have hope, and you know that this is not the end of the tunnel, right? The dunya. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I'm going to drop the mic right there. You know, that's why gratitude is so important in Islam, because sometimes we, we only get, we get upset and we think life is not going our way because we have, we have the wrong perspective, 
And that's why Allah says, you know, you know, all mankind, what has deluded deluded you away from your Lord, the most generous? Yeah. And most man, most most people are ungrateful because we have the wrong perspective. We think I only should give gratitude when I have a big house and I pass my exams. Hold on a second here. Allah says in the Quran, you cannot enumerate your blessing. You couldn't count individually your blessing. And if you think about the heartbeat, right? The heartbeat is the physical cause that keeps you alive. Now here's the challenge. And you know life is a priceless gift. It's something we don't earn, own, or necessarily deserve, but it's freely given to us. And if I said to you, you had 10 heartbeats left to live, and in order to get another 10 years worth of heartbeats, you have to give me all of your wealth, who would give me all of your wealth? So the point here is now, we know one heartbeat is such a priceless gift and a blessing. Now, here's the Quranic challenge. Enumerate your heartbeats you've had in a lifetime. It's actually practically impossible. Because for the, for the first two or three years, you can't count. When you're sleeping, sleeping, you can't count. It's practically impossible to enumerate all your heartbeats you'll have in a lifetime. Just that. So, just that. So that's why I say to my family, anything above a heartbeat is a bonus. Is a bonus. And if you internalize that attitude, but you may like, yeah, I have a heartbeat, but my life's going not not going really well. Yeah, but think about this. What about the almost infinite potential your life has, though? You should be grateful, not for the current state of your life, but the very fact that you have infinite, almost infinite potential for a different type of life. I mean, we've got so much to be grateful for. And if we had the attitude that we must, everything above a heartbeat is a bonus, how can we ever be sad? How can we not have contentment? And this is why it's very important, Habibi, that we shouldn't have a transactional relationship with Allah. This is a disaster in our worship. Hmm. You know, what does a transactional relationship mean? It means that we subconsciously think that that we and Allah are co-equal business partners. Right. Allah gives us some life and money and health, and we're going to give him some salah in return. This is an utter disaster because, number one, you've misunderstood yourself and the divine reality. Number two, you think Allah is worthy of worship by virtue of what he's given you. No, Allah primarily is worthy of worship by virtue of who he is. Not by virtue of how he's decided to manifest his names and attributes in your life. Yes, he's still worthy of praise and gratitude because of that. But fundamentally, Allah is worthy of worship because of who he is. If we can give praise to things by virtue of their attributes, like a sports person or a singer or an ashid artist or a poet, by virtue of their limited contingent attributes, and they don't benefit us directly in any way, then what does it mean how we must give extensive praise to Allah whose names and attributes are, are not you know, limited, they're perfect, maximally perfect to the highest degree possible, you know, without any deficiency on the floor. It means we must give Allah the extensive form of praise by virtue of who He is, not necessarily how He's decided to express it and manifest it in our lives. Right. This, we, this we have to revive, Habibi, in our community because people misunderstand worship. They think it's like transactional. And that is a, a big problem for me, I think. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's not like paying your taxes because you have to, right? It's like almost like because Allah created you, He's inviting you to know who He is. And through that process, you're supposed to recognize He is worthy of worship because of who He is. Absolutely. That's what you're saying in the crux of the matter, perhaps. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, people praise football stars, soccer stars, boxers, MMA, famous soccer player, Ronaldo. Everyone knows Ronaldo. Yeah. Like, let's say I went to a local grocery store and they happened to have a raffle that day. And when I go buy my milk and eggs, ding, ding, Kareem, you won the raffle ticket. You get to meet a famous person in, you know, your state and have lunch with them. And they're like, you get to meet. And I read the name out loud. And I'm like, you know, Tom, John. And everyone in the line's going, oh, my God, you're going to get to meet Tom. And I'm like, I don't know who this guy is. I'm like, I don't I don't really want this. You can anybody else. Want like, Are you kidding me? You have to meet him just by the merit of who this person is. Even if you don't know him, you should you have the opportunity to get to know him right now and have a free meal with him. Why wouldn't you do that? And maybe you'll realize that he's an amazing football player or actor or author or whatever it is. I'm like, oh, cool. You know, I didn't know who they were, though. Right. So it's like, again, I'm just trying to give human stories here to help us relate to this idea of like, if some, if everyone was telling you, you, you should go meet this person, even if you have no clue who he is or she is. And it's an opportunity for you. It's free to go and just do it. Go talk to God or worship Allah, seek knowledge. All that is, there's nothing stopping you. Why wouldn't you take that opportunity? 
right? And, and that's what the Quran is calling. It's calling us to do that. It's calling us to turn the lights on, you know? And when you do that, your vision and your navigation of this existential, you know, theater um, becomes a wonderful picture, inshallah. And hopefully when you rewatch it with, with Allah in the akhirah, you're definitely still going to feel like it was horrible and deserves no awards, but let's hope that some parts you go, I hope that'll give me my saving grace, inshallah, because that's really what we're all riding on here, is Allah's grace and forgiveness in the end of the day. We're not going to earn in weight what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prepared for, for those that will enter his garden, right? May Allah make us from them. You've said it really well. I mean, to be honest, the, the kind of problem of evil and suffering argument is not really a coherent argument. It's based on two false assumptions. That assumptions. The first one is that God is only good and powerful, which is not true. He's also the wise. The other assumption is that Allah hasn't given us any reasons why he's allowed evil and suffering in the first place. But when you look into the Quran and Sunnah, he has given those reasons. But I think fundamentally the most important thing, which is brilliant why, why we spent some time on it towards the end of the session, which was about meaning, you know, mm. which is about, you know, how do we now practically forget this philosophy? really navigate life um, and really transcend suffering by giving the right meaning to suffering. And we know the meaning we give suffering is the meaning from the Quran and Sunnah, is the meaning from the Quran and Sunnah. And when we do that, we can make it our own meaning, but it becomes our own meaning through ibadah, through worship, through connecting with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And hopefully that would change your state of being, how you relate to yourself, how you relate to others and how you relate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And, you know, I would also also always focus on gratitude. Always yes. focus on gratitude. You know, if, if you really believe that anything above a heartbeat is a bonus, then you know what? It's all good, inshallah. And yeah. may Allah make it easy for everybody. And everyone's going through tough times. Everyone's going through suffering. Everyone's got some troubles. But, you know, hopefully, you know, what we've discussed today can make them think, you know, what kind of meaning am I giving this in the grand cosmic scheme of things? You know, what meaning should I give this? And if you give the right type of meaning and you and you connect with Allah, believe me, I think you're going to have contentment, inshallah. Gratitude, attitude, gratitude, ladies and gentlemen. Gratitude's the soul's way of smiling. Hamza, what is the meaning of meaning? I think it's a bit late. I think it's a bit late for me. Now. I know. <laughs> next, think about next, next time, inshallah. But that's a, that was always a good one. Hamza, Habib, thanks again I'm for your time. I'm actually learning through this experience as well. You gave me some, uh, quite a few gems. May Allah bless you. Amen. And I, I really love these experiences. I'm at your service anytime. Uh, let's do this anytime. May Allah bless you.